Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Alona. And I'm Zoe. You're listening to the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we're talking about how childcare became a headline political issue. So I predicted at the start of this year that 2023 would be the year that we finally started talking about childcare as a political issue. And it seems that we have. Obviously, it's not a new issue. Parents, or let's face it, mothers have been talking about the challenges of this for years and years, but it does seem like politicians are finally starting to listen, or at least they're starting to say that they're starting to listen. Zoe, why has it become an issue now? What is the context for this sudden realisation that having children in this country is really hard? So I think there are a few things. So I think, obviously, one of the major issues is the cost of living, which has really put into perspective how unaffordable childcare is. So when costs are spread really thin, childcare, which was already extremely expensive compared to other countries, has just become this huge kind of political issue. Because you can't really cut back on childcare, you know, you have to have someone look after your children. So it's one of those necessities that's become really expensive. But I think also lockdown really brought into perspective issues around childcare. When people were forced to stay at home with their children, their children weren't allowed to go into school, it became really clear how difficult it is to look after your children without proper support if you're working. So I think those two things together have made this increasingly important in the political sphere. Just today, actually, as this podcast will be released, the Centre for Progressive Policy have released some really interesting research about the economic impact of childcare. So they've found that a lack of affordable and accessible childcare is costing the economy billions. So they think the estimated lost economic output is upwards of 27 billion. So that's about 1% of GDP, which is a huge amount lost to unaffordable childcare. They've also found that about 54% of mums, so they particularly surveyed mums, have struggled to find suitable childcare since becoming a parent. And based on their results, they've predicted that about 540,000 mums have been prevented from entering paid work due to a lack of childcare and about 470,000 have quit their jobs. So it's a really huge issue, and it's sort of disproportionately impacting women as well. And as we're like ramping up towards election time, we're going to see how this issue becomes increasingly political, increasingly important. 
Alona, you interviewed Sela Carisi, the Labour MP who's been a real campaigner on the part of working parents with things like taking her baby into the House of Commons and campaigning for, for better provision in all kinds of ways. What did you get from her when you spoke to her? So she talked about, as Zoe outlined, the kind of the political moment and this momentum that's building from the cost of living crisis, but also from the pandemic. And she talked about the role of very prominent activist groups like Pregnant Then Screwed, who have really managed to raise this issue to the fore. And we're going to hear a clip from her in just a minute. But I think one something else that's really key here, and Zoe mentioned that obviously we have an election on the horizon at some point, <laughs> that conservatives are losing women voters. Labour know that they have women voters to gain. And this is such a big election winner potentially for them so it's necessary and also unavoidable for anybody who maybe wants to win the next election one of the things that i think is so important about the debate that's happening now is finally people are seeing this not as an equalities issue but an economics issue but it has been the case for generations that our economy has been stifled by losing Mm. talent from the workplace because we haven't made childcare work. We are one of the least productive nations in the G7. Brexit has holed us below the line, but we were already sinking. And one of the reasons we were sinking is because we don't use our social capital, our people in the best way. And when you dig deeper into the figures, that's often women and it's women of childbearing age. And one of the things I think is so troubling post-pandemic. Every other country has recovered, except for the country that's had Brexit. But also, if you look at the figures about the numbers of women who are not working right now, but want to, it's going up. The ones who are saying the reason they can't is caring responsibilities. So we were already falling behind our competitors in how we dealt with this issue and the impact it was having on productivity. And it's getting worse, not better, which is why this debate needs to happen. But also action needs to happen now. Do I think that be happening without the role that groups like Pregnant and Screwed and Mother Pucker and Mumsnet have all played. Look, I think what happened in the pandemic is that mums were at home and watching government say, oh, yes, we really ought to invest in potholes. But you parents, let's give you a slap on the back and that's enough for you. And it was like the kind of bubble burst. People said, if we don't organise, nothing will change. So absolutely, frankly, as somebody who's, say, been campaigning on it for many years within the political process, it's been seen as a niche issue for women. It's not now. And that, I think, is down to the change in the campaigning organisation. So, you know, if Jolie Brody doesn't get a damehood pretty soon, I think that's the next campaign we should all be running. So before we get into the detail of policy, I wondered, Alona, as our parent on the panel, (laughs) for non-parents out there or for people whose children have grown up and having small children is a distant dream, can you give us a sense of what the landscape is like? You hear lots of things, like terms like tax-free childcare or 30 free hours of childcare. Like, How much is a nursery place and what is it like as a parent of a preschool-aged child trying to balance it all? I have to say, you are looking incredibly energetic for the mother of two small children. (laughs) I'm very lucky in that I have a partner who does a lot of childcare. So I think I'm not a representative example, but I think it's really useful here to quote a survey that Pregnant Then Screwed did last year, which found, I think they they surveyed more than 20,000 parents and they found that two thirds of families spend as much or more than their mortgage or rent on childcare. So it is extortionately expensive and we all know we're among the most expensive in the OECD. We're talking about parents are spending £900 a month or something on on sending their kids, not even full-time necessarily, to a nursery. The way that the system works, and you're testing me on my memories of having sent my first daughter to nursery. I need to remember a few years ago, but you get a number of free hours. So you get 30 free hours of childcare if both parents are working. You get only 15 if only one of them is working. So it's very much tied to 
parents working and also you have to be able to pay you have a sort of childcare account you have to put money into it as well you get taxed back oh, it's, so a very, it, it's a very glitchy it's government a, it's, it's a based complicated system. system and it's not the way that the 30 hours work and other parents might correct me on this you can't necessarily choose exactly when you want the times and the days it's not a perfect system and of course the other issue with the system beyond the fact that it's not simple to claim this stuff and it's complicated for people on universal credit as well. The sector itself is in crisis, as we know. So the last year, I think a record number of nurseries have closed in England, something like 4,000 over the past year. So when you're looking to put your child in childcare, there are a few options and they are incredibly expensive. And as your children get older and when they're actually in school, the problem is, of course, that school is only between nine and three in the afternoon. So you need, you know, one of the things that Labour has pledged is free breakfast clubs for everybody because parents find it so difficult. Yeah, wraparound care. Exactly, the wraparound care. It's a very broken system and fixing it around the edges, what the Labour Party seems to have understood, won't make things work. Yeah, I was really shocked to discover that the 33 hours, which I think you only get when your child is three, so before the age of three, you're on your own. But the 30... (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to say. (laughs) The 33 hours isn't that at all. It's only during school term time. So if you even it out over the course of the and, year... And it, de- and it depends on the nursery. So in some nurseries, it's not only during term time. It depends when the nursery is open. So yeah, it's not as simple as I know that I get this many days a week. But it works out as far fewer than 30 hours. It does hours. work out as fewer. And the other issue you, you raise, which is really important, is if you have a baby, you can you you can take up to a year off for maternity leave. Statutory maternity pay here is incredibly low. It's 90% of your pay for six weeks, which is nothing and most you know if you're lucky your employer will pay you more between the age of from one to three most people don't have any subsidies for childcare. so there's a kind of one year gap there in the middle where you basically if you can't afford to send them in you can't afford to go to work it's a big problem and obviously the UK as we've said has the second highest childcare cost in the OECD but this is a challenge that other countries are facing to varying degrees. Zoe, you've been looking at Australia as a kind of example, a very similar country in a lot of ways, demographic terms to the UK. And suddenly this issue that was seen as the niche women's issue became a kind of top priority in the election, didn't it? Yeah, so basically Labour have been looking quite closely at how Australian Labour won their recent election because they essentially managed to win the election or they put quite a lot of their sort of victory down to the childcare offering that they pledged. So they wanted a really future-facing programme of childcare and a universal 90% subsidy for childcare. Yeah, so it's a really impressive, generous offering. And from UK Labour's perspective, that really won the election. And I think they're wanting to adopt a really similar model and put childcare at the forefront of their sort of economic growth plan. So I know that Bridget Phillipson, who's the Shadow Education Secretary, has been spending some time in Australia talking to the leader. And she's also been going to Estonia as well, where they've got a really kind of comprehensive childcare system. And they're trying to bring those lessons home in their childcare policy. So what have Labour pledged so far? So, so far, it's been a bit ambiguous. And there's been lots of, we're going to put childcare at the forefront of our offering. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be really big. So, so far, as Alona said, they've got universal free breakfast clubs for every primary school child. And they've also pledged to amend the Child Care Act, which would essentially allow councils to open maintained nursery provision where they have capacity. 
you know, I've been speaking to some advisors in the Labour Party and they have basically said there's lots more coming and Labour really want this to be the key mission of the next government. So I think we can expect in the next few months as we ramp up to campaigning time, much more announced, a big offering. I'm getting the impression from UK Labour and Keir Starmer that it's all tied up in Labour's economic growth vision. Childcare is often seen as a social policy because it's to do with women but we've heard lots about how many people are out of the labour market there are nine million people in the uk out of the labour market for various reasons and one of the top reasons is caring for children and the fact as we've discussed lots of parents lots of mothers simply cannot afford to go back to work do you think they can do that do you think they can they can tie these two things together and make the sort of economic case for this to be an investment in the same way as we would see investing in rail or housing or other infrastructure? Well, Stella Creasy managed to put an amendment through to the levelling up bill in December, which basically means that childcare can be treated as infrastructure. Which, let's be clear, it is. If it's enabling people to go to work, that is a form of infrastructure. And and that that is what she says. And the idea of the amendment is that you'll be able to kind of fund childcare settings and people working in them as infrastructure, which is a big kind of paradigm shift. And it definitely relates to this idea of how do you, if you've got a big productivity gap and a lagging lagging economic growth, you need more people getting into the workforce. It makes sense. But I think there's another element to it. And I don't think, by the way, that it's a difficult case to make anymore. It seems pretty accepted. It's, nobody thinks it's radical and crazy for the Labour Party to be saying this will help economic growth in any way. But something else that kind of seems to be a bit more missing from the conversation is the quality of the childcare, the fact that you can, if you give really good quality childcare to people and not just because they want to go to work but because you want children to have a really good start in life you can really help in terms of inequality you know some families you know the cliche of choosing between heating and eating for those families if they had really good high quality free childcare settings to send their child to their child might be better fed might be warmer and might have a better start in life than they would in a system where their parents don't have access to that so I think there's a big point about economic growth but there's another one about kind of equality and well-being and life outcomes and education that's slightly been missing it'd be great to see how Labour brings that in as we get closer to the election because obviously Bridget Phillipson's coming at this from an education portfolio and it's not just about the economic growth really even though obviously that's such a powerful way of making the case for Labour. It's interesting talking about treating childcare as infrastructure because one of the CPP's recommendations in their recent report was that childcare should be treated as economic critical infrastructure in the same way that rail or roads are because their argument is it allows people to go to work just Mm. as the rail allows people to go to work. It allows people to access better skills and earnings and it contributes to our economic productivity. So they're calling on the government to to treat it as critical economic infrastructure so it would be part of the same kind of funding plans as kind of rail or roads. On the quality point as well, Labour has also promised to deliver a renewed focus on the early years. So early years education is a real big part of their kind of education policy and they're putting a lot of kind of emphasis on the importance of early years care, education, and making sure children have the best start in life. And some of that, of course, is on the back of the pandemic where development was slowed and children were out of school. But it's also another part of this kind of big childcare offering. It's giving kids the best start in life. So I think we will see, going forward, looking at Labour's policy, an intersection between early years and childcare. So it will be not just this economic offering, but also a kind of education, health, Mm. social care offering as well. After the break, we'll be discussing what the Tories have been saying about childcare. (laughs) 
If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. It's available for both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. Subscribe to The New Statesman from just £1 a week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We've been talking basically as though Labour are in government and we're already planning all the things that they're going to do. But we've still got a Conservative government. We've got a Conservative government for the next year and a half. And actually, it was a Conservative Prime Minister who mentioned childcare relatively recently. Liz Truss brought it up as one of her supply-side reforms during her very brief tenure as Prime Minister. It was one of those things that she suggested could help pay for all the massive tax cuts that she wanted to do as well. Alona, there was some scepticism about what it was that Liz Truss was suggesting. But, you know, in fairness to her, she was raising it as a key supply side issue. Yeah, if Liz Truss has any positive legacy in any way, it's this, right? Because she, in her very brief 49-day tenure, she said, and she was very clear that reforming childcare was a priority. She called it an overhaul. I'm not sure how much of an overhaul it really was. That might have been overselling it. She talked about something that Boris Johnson had consulted on was to reduce staff-to-child ratios in nursery settings in order to a nursery to cut costs. But that is very unpopular. So with, basically, um, the idea that you could have the same number of staff, get but more children, te- but take in, on more children, get, make a bit more money, and mm. maybe you can pass that cost on to the parents. But because anyone who's looked after children can yeah. say that one adult can totally look after five two-year-olds at once. And definitely ten, right? (laughs) Boris Johnson had already started that consultation. It was very unpopular with parents and with the childcare sector as well. Liz Truss picked that up too, but she was also going to extend the free childcare funding to 50 hours a week. She talked about maybe giving parents cash instead of the system that is in now. So she had all sorts of ideas about how it could change. Obviously, she's not in government anymore. And if anybody remembers um, Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement in November, which was meant to happen under Liz Truss, but ended up happening under Rishi Sunak. The Halloween Saber that was delayed, he didn't mention childcare or early years once in that statement. And there's lots of reporting in the press in January. Liz Truss's people were briefing to the press about how disappointed she was that Rishi Sunak had apparently quietly dropped all of her reforms. They were really pressuring him to pick them up again. And there was some reporting, you know, in the past few weeks about the fact that Jeremy Hunt is planning an extension of the free childcare hours in the budget on March 15th, maybe extending them to all one and two year olds as well. That's the 33 hours. It's really hard to say. But it's very clear. 
particularly, you know, when you look at Rishi Sunak's five pledges or Jeremy Hunt's four E's, there's very little in there that sounds anything like what Zoe described that Labour is doing, which is linking childcare to economic growth and also talking about that kind of quality, even though they are talking about education. So like the Leveling Up white paper talks about, for example, the standards of primary education and literacy and numeracy going up, but they're not really talking about what happens in those crucial first years of life and how that can help children have more equal opportunities. Apparently, Liz Truss understood she wanted to go into the idea that she was going to be fighting the next election. She wanted to go with childcare as a priority because she understood the Conservatives are losing women voters. And this is not just an issue for women at all, but obviously women are really disproportionately affected by the lack of childcare. Labour has kind of understood this in a much smarter way, it seems, as the Conservatives aren't quite there yet when it comes to understanding like the people who are going to vote at the next election. All, all those parents who are spending more than their mortgage on childcare will definitely vote for a kind of really bold childcare reform. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think it's important to say that there are some Conservatives who are actually leading a bit of a charge within the party for childcare. So Robin Walker, who's chair of the Education Select Committee, when he, just before he got elected, actually, I spoke to him and he made it very clear that childcare would be the Education Committee's big inquiry if he was to become chair. And true to form, he is pushing for that. And it is a really big inquiry that they're running on. And he's a father. I think he's got young children. So he has a personal a personal stake in this. There's also kind of Siobhan Bailey as well, who's pushing Jeremy Hunt to cut childcare costs in the next budget, in the March budget. And then there's also Andrea Leadsom as well, who told, I think it was the House magazine, that she thought the next election would be fought on childcare. So there are some in the party who are getting it, but it does seem like there's this real kind of failure to launch there of that coming across in their policy. So in terms of what might happen, there are whispers that there might be some kind of offering in the budget. The Treasury have been mocking up options, along with the Department for Education, on expanding childcare. What exactly that will look like, we don't know yet. All that Sunak's done so far, seemingly, is kind of scrap Truss's plans and he wrote or was planning to begin a letter writing campaign to beg mums to get off the sofa that was was, I remember seeing that incredibly insulting the idea that hang on all of these working age mothers aren't in work I wonder what we can do to tempt them back I know we'll write them a letter saying please come back to work I think most of those letters would probably go straight in the bin to be honest I don't don't think that'll go down well Rishi Sunak does strike me as a man who has never had to cancel an important work meeting because Mm. he couldn't get childcare for one of his daughters They've got two kids, but he doesn't give the impression of ever having been put in that position, does he? It's a shame because you don't want to be like, oh, this is a man who's always been fine and had a nanny. But he does give off that impression. And I think failing to hear both what Labour is saying, what the public is saying and members of his own party, it doesn't really look good. And I think hopefully we'll see something in the budget, but it's yet to be confirmed. Keep our eyes peeled there. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out that while there are voices in the Conservative Party who do seem to get this, whether for economic reasons or because they realise it's a key election issue, there are also others in the Conservative Party who understand that life is very difficult mm. for parents, but think that the way to solve this is to empower mothers to not work so they can look after their own children and don't need childcare. I mean, Miriam Cates Mm. gave a speech a couple of weeks ago, which she seemed to imply that actually it was better for children and better for mothers if they didn't need state support for childcare and they could just afford to look after their own kids. Now, obviously, what with housing costs in this country, that's a distant dream for many women 
anyway the idea that you could exist with a child or more than one child on a single income or indeed on no income because single parents exist too there is this sort of traditional small c conservative view that actually the state shouldn't be getting involved in this at all i think she sort of implied that there was something almost a bit sinister about the state trying to get involved in nurseries how big of an issue do you think that is is it a fringe view or is this actually something that could be holding back any kind of progress on this issue i think it's probably a bit of a fringe view but i think we need to be aware that increasingly there have been no concerns raised in the conservative party about this kind of influential rise of this sort of christian right that have these slightly more kind of socially conservative views and I think childcare or mothers maybe taking a step back from working and returning to their home is probably going to be one of those. Whether it would actually be influential over government policy, especially when the economic argument is so strong to get women back into work, I think probably not. We are seeing, as we often do, a kind of resurgence, culture and online as well in this kind of trad wife, this kind of move back to the home and isn't it lovely to just look after babies and have it, chickens and... Is it lovely, Alona, to look after babies and have chickens? <laughs> I mean, I don't have chickens. Um, <laughs> but, but that's like, you know, where you're going wrong. That's where we're yeah. going wrong. But I think the reason it's important for childcare to be accessible and affordable and high quality for everyone is so everybody can make their own decisions. It should be all right if somebody wants to stay home and look after their children. That should be completely fine. It shouldn't be that we're kind of pushing people to work because we think that's the right thing to do. And I would say on this point, the really key thing, if we really want to, we're talking about sort of gender equality and feminist progress. One of the things that's really key is for men who want to look after their children to Mm. be able to stay home and do that and for it not to be unaffordable for them or stigmatised. You know, another conservative leader, Theresa May, one of the things she wanted to do and didn't get around to doing was to reform the paternity leave setup we have in the UK, which has a take-up of something like 2%. It's a terrible failure of a policy. Barely anyone can afford to stay home with their kids as a father of a young baby or a child under one anyway. And that's the thing that could make a really big difference down the line. If you have a system that works and then you enable... talking about very heteronormative couples here where the woman tends to earn less, the men tend to not have a good paternity leave provision so they can stay home for a very long time with their babies. And then they end up missing out on something which women are stigmatised for doing and end up losing out in the workforce for. So there's reform around the earlier maternity and paternity leave stuff as well as the childcare stuff for later. And obviously the Christian right thinking that assumes that it should be women who do it because it's natural for women to nurture and care for children isn't helpful for anyone, I would argue. But I would say that it should be possible if a woman does want to stay home, look after her kids, wonderful. It can be a wonderful thing to do if you want to do it. But the question is whether people feel like they are forced into it. You know, we did a survey last year We asked about whether women are staying home because they can't afford childcare and 70% of the respondents said, yes, that is a reason that women are staying home. They cannot afford childcare. It's not a choice. Exactly. At the moment, they're not choosing. So it's disingenuous to talk about how wonderful it is that women should stay and support them when actually it's not really a choice for them Mm -hmm. if they can't afford not to and there's no way that their partner could do it instead. I think in some Scandinavian countries, they have a use it or lose it approach to paternity leave where you get leave as a new father and if you don't take it, you don't get it, you can't pass it on. You can't pass it on. And I read somewhere that in Norway, for example, it's almost socially weird not to do it. Like, really, you wouldn't want to take it? Like, why wouldn't you want to take the paid leave to be with your child? That's strange. And so people almost feel like socially pressured to, to take the leave. 
So one of the campaigners who's been really active in this is Jolie Braley, who started the organisation Pregnant Then Screwed, which gathers a whole lot of data from new parents or from women who are pregnant and have faced workplace discrimination or issues with childcare. And the wonderful Anoush interviewed her last year. We've linked to her interview in the show notes. But I just want to bring out one thing that she said in that, which is, while the average worker in the early years childcare sector earns £7.42 an hour, almost a fifth of parents have been forced out of their jobs because they can't afford childcare. Now, we've talked about parents being forced out of their jobs because they can't afford childcare, but we haven't talked about how low the pay actually is for workers in the childcare sector and how much nurseries have been struggling. Loads of nurseries have closed during the pandemic because they have such low margins, they just can't keep going. It's really easy to look at high childcare costs and go, wow, those nursery providers, they must be raking it in. But that's not the reality. It's not the reality. And I think also there's reporting around the government has admitted that it has underpaid those subsidies to nurseries for years. So there's all sorts of reasons why they're struggling beyond all those rising costs, too. But I think a really a major voice missing from this whole debate, you know, Pregnant Then Screwed is an amazing organisation. They Last year, they organised thousands of parents and go out into the street. It was called the March of the Mummies. Which, by the way, is a terrible it's name. It's a terrible I name. It was I was a great, you thought it was a great yeah. name. I thought okay. it was awful. I cringed. I went, oh, okay, great. They got it, them out there. It was Halloween, wasn't You're it? You're right. It's very clever. Okay. Stay on Halloween. Yeah. But still a bit cringy. <laughs> but one of the things, and, and, you know, overwhelmingly, we're talking about middle class mothers who are standing up and making a case for themselves. And, you know, I am a middle class mother, so I'm not, you know, I like those women. But I think we don't hear from the many people working in the sector who are not unionized, who are earning very low wages. There's very little career progression, really high turnover. It's an incredibly difficult job. Anybody who spent any time with their child knows knows it's difficult and knows what difference it makes to have somebody who is really good at that job. And it it can change a child's life to work with somebody who has the emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. to do that job. And a lot of the time when people are talking about the expense, like you say, Rachel, it's what about the the kind of representation of those people who are not earning enough for the job that they're doing already, which should be much more highly valued, right, as care work should be in general? Is it just that we undervalue childcare in the same way that we undervalue care in all kinds of other areas because it used to be unpaid women's work and so now we're paying women to do it but we're not paying them very much? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, as you say, it goes alongside kind of social care, even nurses, midwives, all these kind of traditionally female roles that we just don't feel the need to pay properly, even though... Teachers as well. Yeah, teachers, teachers, of course. We just don't feel the need to pay properly, even though they're working with some of the most vulnerable groups and at really key stages in their lives, you know, end of life care, beginning of life care, and obviously in hospitals as well when people are really sick and unwell. So I think it's a really sad state of affairs when these jobs aren't paid properly, but they're so integral. And as you say, it can make a real difference to a child's life who brings them up in those early years. You really want to think that your child is getting all the key milestones that they need between those ages. But if there aren't enough nursery workers or the workers aren't paid enough, they're burned out, they're not going to be performing properly, then it's going to create a generation of children that aren't having proper development and teaching. As you said before, it's both economic, but it's also social. Yeah, and it's a kind of, it's potentially, isn't that's a big economic opportunity, isn't it? If you can be talking about growth and productivity, then you have a potential to develop a sector with higher wages and career progression, with kind of much more sustainable businesses. There's economic arguments around all of it, but there's also a sort of ethical, moral one around you can't just cut the costs it's not just about that because you've got this kind of people here, professional sector that isn't seen as professional and is really undervalued. And I think there's definitely wider mechanics earn more than 
nursery workers. There's no really good answer to that. Mm. And we can talk about, obviously, most people who work in childcare or women. You mentioned all those other kind of jobs that women overwhelmingly do that are also really undervalued. So we can all, we can all draw the big conclusion from that. And hopefully there'll be a change in, in the coming years. We, if there is a Labour government that's taking the sector seriously and apparently as Wes Streeting has said they want to take care in general more seriously to professionalise it and and support care professionals in earning more money and having proper careers then maybe there'll be a big shift. Alona you sound slightly optimistic, (laughs) vaguely optimistic about this. Zoe are you any optimism? I am optimistic from a personal perspective three women here I'm coming into a stage in my life where one day I'll probably be thinking about having children and how I'll fund that same with my kind of peer group and I think it looked quite bleak for a while but as we're heading towards a Labour government that says it's going to put childcare front and centre of its kind of offering I am feeling hopefully quite optimistic yeah what about you Rachel are you optimistic I'm optimistic that we're having this conversation. I didn't think a couple of years ago that this would be the kind of headline political issue Mm. that it has become. I think it's going to take longer than I would like it to. But the conversation's happening and I guess that's a positive thing. Absolutely. It is amazing to see how this has become a political priority. It's something that we are seeing in real time happening over the past year. And the big shift I think that will come is from it not being seen as an issue for women to fix but an issue for everybody to Mm. fix and that's the big shift that still needs to happen and it's really interesting that the Labour Party the people who seem to be most active in pushing this policy are women that Liz Truss was the woman who pushed it you know why is it that women are the ones who still prioritise this we need to make sure men think that it's their responsibility too Alona and Zoe thank you so much thank you thank you for having us If you want to hear the full version of Alona's interview with Stella Creasy, we'll be releasing a bonus episode on Wednesday. And remember, if you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. This week, we've been celebrating our women writers from around the world. Discover more from our talented journalists who can explain the defining issues of our times and perhaps even change how you see the world by following the link in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my colleagues, Alona Ferber and Zoe Grinwald. We'll be back on Thursday discussing the week in politics. Follow us on your podcast app and make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch the video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Mae Robson. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.